Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 16th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, our old buddy, CNN data reporter, analyst, polling analyst, political analyst, and host of the Margins of Error podcast, Harry Enten. Harry, welcome back to the podcast. Shalom. I feel like I have aged tremendously since the last time I was on this. The thing is that you still look like you just, you know, graduated from college. So, you know, I I think you should, you may feel older, but you still look fresh as a daisy on the Zoom that no one can see as we are taping this podcast. If you want, we can provide your listeners with a photo of my uh, college freshman ID, which I still carry around in my pocket. You do? And does it get you? I mean, is it it's not a fake? What what possible virtue can an ID that says that you're 18 years old be if you Um, ever get carded? I I also have my high school ID still on me, but I also have the. the room key or I guess the room fob or whatever the hell we room card from the time I stayed at, you know, the Kimpton George in Washington DC four years ago. So I have a bit of a hoarder problem. <laughs> I see in your wallet. That must be, in my that wallet. must be, that must be one thick wallet. Well, enough about your wallet and let's go from your wallet to your brain and the immense amount of data that is stored therein. Uh, that has has made you one of the most uh, interesting analysts of political trends and polls of our time. So uh, we're now been through a whole bunch of primaries here in 2022. And it was from you uh, and something that you said the other day that I cribbed yesterday or the day before, where I think you said that based on everything that we know, that regarding the generic ballot, the question of whether or not if the election were held today, you would vote for a Democrat or a Republican, that Republicans are in the best shape going into the midterms that they have ever been. And I think I think you said even by a factor of three, is that do do I have that right? Yeah, you have it right. I mean, look, uh, right now, Republicans hold about a three point lead on the generic congressional ballot. That's that national poll question that asks if the election were held today, uh, who do you want to win in your district? The Republican candidate, the Democratic candidate, it's called generic because they don't actually list or say the name of the candidates that are running in your district. And we can look back since 1938 in every single midterm in June or there in about, you know, sometimes maybe it's a late May poll. And what we see over time historically is that Democrats almost always lead on the generic ballot. I think the only year at this particular point in which Democrats did not lead was 2010. And while I am a young man, I am getting older and I do recall that election. And Republicans had a net gain of 63 seats in that election. Normally, the generic ballot has two trends that occur. One, is that the party that's the opposition party, the non-White House party, tends to gain usually from this point until the election. And the other trend line that we normally see is that the Republican party on the whole, not always, tends to be underestimated on the generic ballot compared to 
what the final national house vote is. Ergo, since 1938, you take into account all the elections, the Republican lead of plus three on the generic ballot is the best that they've ever been at this point in any election that has been anywhere close, whether it be 2010, 2002, 2014, all of those resulted in a Republican majority in the House of Representatives in that midterm. So um, we then see in response to this data, um, uh, a lot of frenetic activity in which the White House and, and Democrats on the Hill are trying to make it look as though, or even trying in policy terms to, uh, to do stuff so that they can go back to the voters in the fall and say, we were responsive to your concerns. We have done things in relation to inflation, gas prices, uh, all kinds of things um, that you can therefore trust us with your vote in November. Uh, that may or may not be true. It may or may not be the policy may or may not work. Generally speaking, though, you're saying that from here in June until November, the 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 curve bends toward the Republicans or the party out of power. And so if they're at a three yeah. point here, they're only going to go up from here. So does that mean or, they, or, or, or historical trends suggest they only go up from here? Does. So is this baked in the cake and our and our Democrats and Biden everything wasting their time by sort of moving frantically or is there reason to think that they can flip the script or change alter the momentum or change the trajectory that seems to be that history you're, you're I mean you're saying going back to 1938 that's you know 85 years 86 years or whatever 84, 84 years. years that there's my math 84 years that's a lot of years that's uh, what is that that's uh, f- uh, 42 congressional elections uh, it's it's older than Joe Biden is. And if that's the case, then you're probably going back a while. Look, I'm not going to suggest that all the Democrats should, you know, get on their couch, you know, open up a big thing of Haagen-Dazs ice cream and start crying while watching The Notebook. I, that that I don't think that they should do. Margarita is um, in kickboxing. Uh, I, I cry the watching The Notebook no matter what the world situation is. Like <laughs> I could be the happiest person on, on earth, but when, you know, when Jenna Rollins loses it on James Garner, I am, I'm a puddle. Anyway, go ahead. No, I mean, look, these are historical trends, right? These aren't forecasts of what will necessarily happen. But based on historical trends, you would make the argument that, as Sean Trende has, if you look at political science models, they often can work off of data basically at the beginning of summer and get a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. But there are margins of error associated with this, right? Would it be the most shocking thing in the world that Democrats keep their House losses down to a minimum? No, it wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world. But let me throw a few other statistics at you. There have been three House elections since basically the advent of modern polling in which the president's party has lost less than five seats. 
which is essentially what Democrats need to do in order to maintain control of the House. 1962, 1998, 2002. In all those elections, the president's approval rating at this point was over 60%. Joe Biden's approval rating right now is below 40% in the average of polls. It's the lowest it's ever been. If Democrats are going to pick up speed and momentum, the president simply put has to become more popular. And the way he becomes more popular is probably not through messaging. It's probably through the economy, stupid, as James Carville once said. Inflation is the number one issue by far. We have historic inflation. It's the highest gain in inflation, at least measured by the Consumer Price Index Urban or CPIU in a midterm election since 1974. And obviously 1974, although that's kind of twisted with the Nixon resignation was another midterm in which the White House party got basically shellacked losing, I believe it was 48 seats if my memory is correct, but I apologize. No, I, think was, I, think was, I think it was 72. Am I crazy? No, it wasn't Let me 70. look it up. I think Hold it was on. 48, but look it up and we or can- Or they ended up plus 72 anyway. Um, go ahead. The point being that sure, you can go messaging and messaging can help on the outer edges. And I think messaging and hopefully if we can, we'll get into it in the Senate races may make more of a difference than it is in the overall house picture. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at every election, midterm election since 1870, essentially the post-Civil War era, um, we're talking about, I think it's 35 out of 39 times or some ridiculous stat like that in which the White House party has lost uh, five or more seats uh, on the net. Uh, it's just really hard, John. So uh, let's talk a little bit let about me just statewide. Let me just correct that. Let me just finish sure. correcting. So it was 49 seats. 49. But the, key, but the key to understanding this is that the Democrats ended up with more than two-thirds of the seats in the House after the 74 election, which may have been, you know, only only twice before, I think, in modern history, had one party held as many seats in the house. So, I mean, they could have won more had there been more to win. It's like they won everything that could possibly have been won and ended up with 67% of the seats in the house. Anyway, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, so the, let's talk a little bit about statewide because obviously Republicans have the wind at their backs. And yet on the statewide level, um, Republican candidates are emerging from the primaries who are deeply flawed and maybe not great fit for their for their states. Now, this is candidate specific, state specific. I could name names, but there are frankly too many. Um, it's quite often that Republicans tend to elevate candidates who I think uh, are probably deeply flawed. However, there's a lot of wind in the Republican Party's sails. Is this quantifiable? The range at which um, voter preference overcomes generally uh, and antipathy towards an individual candidate, or just is it hostility to the White House that'll just blow a lot of these candidates into office? And is there a, a, a threshold at which point you can say it doesn't matter how deeply flawed you are? Voters are just ready to exact revenge against the party in power. It's a great question. And the way I would respond to it is that it's become less and less important how good the candidate is. We have seen an increased trend in the correlation between how people feel about the president and how they vote for the United States Senate. Essentially in 2006, which is not that long ago, the correlation was actually quite small. Uh, you could have you know, Republican candidates losing in 
red states, Democratic candidates losing in blue states. Remember, Lincoln Chafee was a Republican candidate who nearly won in Rhode Island back in 2006, despite the fact that the president's approval rating was ridiculously low. Now, Lincoln Chafee obviously was not a fan of George W. Bush, but still, you nearly had Harold Ford winning a Senate seat in Tennessee in 2006. You flash forward to the last two presidential elections, 2016 and 2020, there was literally one Senate race that differed, the outcome differed from the presidential race in that state. And that was Susan Collins in the state of Maine who held on, was reelected even though Joe Biden easily won that state. Now in midterm elections, we'll have to see exactly how it shakes out. But the real issue to me is it's not that Republicans need to go into these blue states and start winning races. What Republicans need to do is they need to go into a state like Georgia, which Joe Biden barely won. They have to go into a state like Nevada that Joe Biden barely won. You have to go into a state like Arizona that Joe Biden really barely won. And you just need a net gain of one. That's all you need is a net gain of one. The question ultimately is even if one candidate loses because they're flawed, does that mean they're gonna, all the flawed candidates are gonna lose? That's what Democrats need to essentially happen across the board is that they need these flawed Republican candidates to lose across the board and or maybe get lucky in a state like Pennsylvania where Dr. Oz is running and the earliest polling from there actually shows him trailing by nearly double digits to John Fetterman in a state that Joe Biden barely won and is quite unpopular in. So that's gonna be a very interesting give and take. And you know, history isn't necessarily prologue. And I think the question is, maybe in this era, the lessons of 2020 and the lessons of 2016 won't necessarily apply. But my guess is based upon, if we put it into a statistical model and we said, okay, where do prognosticators see these races right now? And given what the generic ballot is, what do we ultimately come out and find? We find that on average, Republicans will pick up enough seats to take control of the United States Senate, but it is certainly within the margin of error that Democrats could maintain control. I mean, we're in a weird place, right? Because the Senate is 50-50. And so that means Republicans need a net pickup of one, period, nationwide, right? There are 33 Senate races. They need a net pickup of one. You've mentioned uh, three states where there are competitive, obviously very competitive races. That's the Warnock-Herschel uh, Walker race in Georgia. Um, we don't know who the Republican candidate is in Arizona. And there does appear to be like, is there are several lunatics running in Arizona, but Mark Kelly does not appear to be a particularly strong incumbent. And then we have Catherine Cortez. I can't remember. Catherine Cortez Masto. Right. Uh, in, in Nevada, also not a particularly strong uh, incumbent. And the state polling seems to be trending, even though the state seems to have been trending Democratic. She's not in great shape. And then you have a couple of other places, right? There was a poll out of North Carolina that showed Ted Budd trailing. North Carolina. Yes. Uh, Republicans right. can blow this. Well, and then there's and then there's New Hampshire, right? Because there's mm-hmm. there's a Maggie Hassan who only won by a thousand votes in 2016 over uh, Kelly Ayotte. 
And again, I'm not even sure who's the candidate. They're they probably don't know. candidate no there. But um, but I mean, I, I think it will be it'll likely be a miracle if she holds that seat. We're talking about all these other races, and she seems very precarious, and that state seems primed to be part of a Republican wave, New Hampshire. So there are other places where, you know, where the domino can topple and in a way, and of course. Let's talk a little bit about wave elections. Like one of the things that happens in wave elections is unlikely candidates. And we're not even talking about every candidate we're talking about here is likely. I mean, even though Herschel Walker seems to be stark, raving, insane, uh, he is a candidate with a good shot of winning, even though, you know, uh, so. But when you're talking about these kind of wave elections, we have all kinds of evidence in previous waves where people are pulled in, particularly to the Senate, who at this point in time, nobody even would have thought were even possible. The great case being Jeremiah Denton in Alabama, first Republican to win a seat in Alabama since Reconstruction. Excuse me? In 1980. In 1980, like the first one to win in Alabama since Reconstruction, uh, you know, um, and he was a great, I mean, he was a great candidate on paper. He was a, you know, he had POW uh, in, in the Hanoi Hilton and a very brave and noble guy and a, a lovely guy, by the way, but he only served a term. There were all these Reagan senators who only served a term because as the, as politics came back to chick hecked in Nevada, in Nevada, I mean, there were these kind of weird one term senators Um swept in in a wave and so i i don't know where that might be i don't know if you're you know watching the senate that way but you know anywhere you're saying republicans could blow it no but democrats could blow it in places we don't even know we didn't think possible is that i I would say a few things one uh if my memory is correct that jim Folsom jr lost to jeremiah denton believe Chick Hecht, did he not save John Kerry's life? Chick Hecht? Yeah, I believe he saved him from uh, choking. I think that was uh, what it was. Uh-huh. Was, that, was that him? I can never remember. I don't know. I don't know. Was. Chick Hecht was a, was, a, was a very cute, short Jewish guy in Nevada who ended up... Yes, he did. Save, he, he saved... Um, uh, oh, no, it was John Kerry that saved Chick Hecht. Chick Hecht. That sounds more... That sounds more plausible. Yes. And... Uh, but interestingly enough, Heck's election, although it was it was actually in 82, I believe it, it oh, was, was it. I'm Howard, sorry. But ha- but it was a great example because Howard Cannon um, was there was some belief that he might have been corrupt, though. I don't believe they ever really found anything on that. Um, it just shows that, you know, sometimes in individual Senate races, weird things can happen. But the issue here is we have 35 Senate seats up, 34 regularly scheduled and one special in Oklahoma is that because the margin of error is so small for Republican, uh, for, for Democrats, excuse me, if it, it was Republicans need to pick up a net gain of three, okay, that's an inter- really interesting discussion. But if they need a net pickup of one, all of a sudden that makes the math so much easier whereby you don't need to win in New Hampshire and, you, and Arizona and Georgia and Nevada you just need to win in one of those and then hold on to your own seats or win in two if you lose a state like Pennsylvania. It's not that difficult. And there's a reason why the historical model suggests 
Republicans will gain control and why the betting markets have generally been erring somewhere in the three or four to one range for Republicans to take control of the Senate. I have a question for Harry. It's something that came up uh, yesterday. So uh, you had the special election in Texas. Uh, Myra Flores won. And uh, we were Noah was talking about uh, the extent to which uh, Democrats seem to be whistling past the the graveyard, this de- demographic graveyard here um, in terms of uh, Hispanic Americans drifting uh, to, to the GOP. Can you speak to that uh, in terms of data um, to what extent that is changing and how and how quickly and, and uh, this year and over the past few years? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think one of the interesting things was that, you know, there was this whole idea 15 years ago that Republicans were screwed because the country was becoming more diverse and because the country was becoming more diverse and they, you know, Hispanics and Asians were voting heavily Democratic. That meant that the Republican majority, Republicans really would not have much of a chance and a majority going forward in future elections. Well, it turns out that those forecasts were very premature. And the reason that they were premature was because turns out voters can change. You know, you use South Texas as an example, right? The Texas 34th district, which is a district that Hillary Clinton won by over 20 points. Joe Biden then only won it by four points. Then obviously in the special election, Maya Flores, uh, got a majority, more, more than a majority, a majority of the vote, more than 50% of the vote, you use a county like Starr County in South Texas, which I don't believe is in the 34th. Starr County is a county that Hillary Clinton won by 60 points, 60 points. Do you know how much Joe Biden won that county by? Joe Biden won that county, I get this, he won that county by only five points. That's a 55 point swing in one election cycle. Holy cow, Phil Rizzuto. We see it more generally speaking with Hispanics, right? We see that their approval rating of Joe Biden is way down from where it was in the beginning of the term. It's not as clear on the generic congressional ballot that Hispanics are moving as far to the right as it is in Joe Biden's approval rating, but we have seen that with voters of color across the spectrum. We see among black voters that Joe Biden's approval rating is rate, approval rating is well down. We see it on the generic ballot among black voters that the Democratic lead is well down. We see it among Asian voters that the Democratic lead is still down. Now, Democrats are still leading with each of these groups that I just mentioned on the generic congressional ballot, but it's not about that Republicans need to quote unquote win among these groups. What they need to do is keep the Democratic margins down. And then when you combine that with the fact that white voters overwhelmingly support Republican candidates, it makes the coalition building significantly easier. Let's talk about issues, because of course we were sitting here waiting on tender hooks for the Supreme Court to make its ruling in, in Dobbs and either formally enshrine the leaked Supreme Court opinion that that uh, over overturned Roe v. Wade or whatever and then the idea is this is going to unleash hell uh, or you know a massive uh, culture war uh, in the summer um, that will give Democrats some wind in their sails on the abortion issue for the first time 
ever really i mean it's been it's as a voting issue abortion has been a voting issue for republicans uh, or maybe for southern democrats in the 70s but once those southern democrats all became republicans it became a as a single issue vote it was a single issue vote for abort for uh, for pro-life not for pro-choice and that could really change now but is there is there precedent for something like this again sort of flipping the script or changing the momentum or altering the dynamic nationally that would have an effect on on the midterms there are big events that can change things right um i would make the argument that the september 11th attack changed things i'd make the argument that the persian gulf war and what was viewed as George H.W. Bush's very good handling of that changed things, even though his people's views of him on the economy were not particularly strong. Uh, and Republicans really had a good midterm by historical standards. They kept their losses down in the House and the Senate. Uh, there's a reason why, you know, I had this slide up. I did this slide on um, Jake Tapper's show uh, a few weeks ago, maybe it was last week, whatever it was. And it was basically like, if you were to take the race ratings from folks like the Cook Political Report and Inside Elections and translate it into gains based upon a historical model, uh, I have on that graphic at this point, or if the election were held today, which it isn't, you know, you make that point as blasting as possible. I'm not sure there's really a, a historical analogy to what would happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned. I will say the initial polling suggested that it wasn't going to have that big of an impact. But it is one thing for it to be sort of this leak that's this hypothetical as opposed to an actual ruling. Uh, all that being said, here's the deal. The deal is pretty simple. If you have historic inflation, you have historic high gas prices, the number one issue is the economy. Within that, the number one issue is inflation. And you can't solve that problem for most Americans, not all. The fact that they have to pay more to put food on the table, the fact that they have to pay more to put gas in their, to fill up their car with gas, that's still going to be the dominant issue if history is to be believed. Okay. So let me throw this at you. So one of the major problems in midterms with the party in power, particularly when the president's numbers are low is a massive enthusiasm gap where where voters of the president's party just don't bother to come out in November. Obviously, a lot of that has been mitigated by mail-in voting, early vote, you know, the, the fact that there are multiple ways to vote now so that, you know, you don't have to go on election day and it rains and you don't want to go or you're bored or whatever. And if there's good get out the vote action that gets you to do it, maybe you can mitigate some of that and make sure that your turnout is relatively high. But let's just say that enthusiasm gap means people are just not jazzed enough even to bother. Can an issue like abortion mitigate that? Like, you know, it, it's not that it's going to change minds or it's going to get people, but can it make, can it ensure, particularly in places where things are going to be close run, like Pennsylvania, that you know, moderate Democratic women 
who may not, you know, who may be suffering the effects of inflation and don't like Biden particularly or whatever, nonetheless vote for Democrats uh, because uh, their buttons have been pushed on abortion? It's a great question. And yes, you're right. Historically speaking, what we have seen is that the party, the White House party suffers a a decreased enthusiasm effect. So another way to put it is if you look at the relative turnout by party affiliation or party ID um, in midterms in which there's a Democratic president, Republicans tend to do on average about five to six points. They turn out five to six points more relative to Democrats in years in which there's a Democratic president versus when there's a Republican president, there is in fact no real difference uh, between them. I will say, I will say if you look at the polling and you look at enthusiasm, it really does depend what poll you're looking at to get an understanding as to whether or not there is a big difference in enthusiasm right now. So for example, if you look at our CNN polling, more Republicans say they're extremely enthusiastic than Democrats do. It's about a 10 point difference. If you look at a Fox News poll that was out last night, which essentially asked, compared to previous congressional elections, are you more enthusiastic about voting this year than usual, less enthusiastic, or about the same as usual? In fact, more enthusiastic, 47% for Republicans, more enthusiastic, 44% for Democrats. That's a within the margin uh, of error type of thing. So it could be that something like overturning Roe v. Wade could close that gap even more. But but what that would really do is not necessarily change the idea that Republicans are going to gain control of the House because they're already leading on the generic congressional ballot. And even if it's a tie, that would probably be good enough in the National House for, for Republicans to take control, given such a small margin that Republicans lost at last time by three points and nearly gained control of the House. But what it would probably do would keep those losses from being huge and historic to being more within the relative historic range, if that makes sense. Okay, so uh, we'll, I'm gonna jump out of 2022 for a second. We can go back to it, but let's have a little bit of fun. Cause I saw you say something the other day, Harry, about speculation over the future of the president and his political career. This morning, our colleague, absent colleague, Christine Rosen, brings us to our attention uh, in the Atlantic, Mark Leibovich is going right after Joe Biden saying, get out, don't run again. You're, we need to make way for the future. Now, I'm one of the lonely few uh, who have been saying on this podcast since Inauguration Day 2021 that Joe Biden will run for re-election, whether he wants to or not. In the absence of some catastrophic health event, they will prop him up on his horse like El Cid because the alternative is absolute chaos. And you noted that there's no, there will be no primary fight because the president is broadly popular with Democrats, right? But in the event that he abdicates, which I still find hard to believe, um, how does the party recover? Oh, <laughs> and there's no, there's no one waiting in the wings. It would be a knockdown drag out fight. And there's absolutely, it's very difficult to imagine the party emerging from that scenario, healthy and intact and capable of competing in 2024. What a mess. Well, you know, here are a few things. You hinted at it. and Let's cover it all. Uh, the president is still broadly popular among Democrats. He's not as popular as he once was. His approval ratings are around 80% among Democrats, and there's simply put no historical precedent 
of a president who is that popular amongst his own party really receiving any sort of strong primary challenge or even relatively strong, right? Uh, someone like George H.W. Bush in 1992, he received a challenge from Pat Buchanan. Bush won every single state. Bush's approval rating among Republicans was in the low 70s, if I recall, by the time of the New Hampshire primary. Um, the challenges when you had a Gerald Ford uh, from Ronald Reagan in 76 or Jimmy Carter from uh, Ted Kennedy in 1980, their approval ratings among uh, their own party members was in the 60s, not below that. Uh, so we have that. We also know, however, that Joe Biden is going to be over the age of 80. Uh, does that mess with the math? Maybe in terms of maybe the approval ratings don't mean as much. Uh, and that may, in fact, allow Biden to, as you say, abdicate, say, I'm not going to run again. Very plausible scenario. I in no way am dismissing that. But here's the thing, as you pointed out, who the heck would run? Everyone? I mean, now all of a sudden you, you have Kamala Harris, who's the uh, first black woman vice president or president who would supposedly be waiting in the wings, whose popularity ratings make Joe Biden's look like Mother Teresa's. I mean, this is nuts. And now you're gonna have a challenge of that person and it's gonna, you know, the whole thing's gonna be thrown into chaos. Joe Biden, for better or for worse, held almost a consistent from wire to wire lead during the Democratic primary in 2020. Most, or at least a plurality of Democratic voters wanted him, especially once you got past Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, then it was, you know, basically game over for everybody else. It's completely unclear, would it be Harris, would it be Buttigieg, who still has no real rapport with black voters? Would it be someone like a Gretchen Whitmer? Would it be Jared Paulus out of Colorado, the governor out there? It's entirely unclear. The only person who can unite the Democratic Party at this point is the, is the president of the United States. And so to me, I think it was Jeff Greenfield who had an article in Politico. He was like, okay, Biden's not great, but what the heck's the alternative? Utter chaos would likely be the alternative. I mean, well, there's no more floating Michelle Obama, I suppose. Uh, Why not? I, Michelle Obama has shown no interest of running. Correct. Uh, yeah. And Michelle Obama in the Democratic primary polling um, is not really gone anywhere. I mean, Biden generally polls against like 10 candidates in the 30s, which is not great. But his margin over any of them is at least as wide as, say, Barack Obama's was against Hillary Clinton in a hypothetical matchup in this point in 2010. I'd like you to know. see it if only because there would be a draft effort for somebody like that when everybody who's advocating for Joe Biden to make way all of a sudden looks around at the landscape that they've created and panics. Says we got to get somebody in there who's popular. Look, Noah, you're absolutely right. An implicit issue with Biden running in 2020 was this, that it's a weird thing to say you're only voting, you know, it's a binary choice in 2020, one election, one president. But, you know, he did make say those things about how he's a bridge. He was running to be a bridge. He was there to, you know, to sort of like clear the path for the next generation. And I kind of remember the same, the same thing being said about Nancy Pelosi, right? She was going to be a transitional candidate right until the moment when she looked around and said, well, I'm not going to yeah. give this up. <laughs> Whom? Look, I mean, you mentioned Reagan, uh, you know, Reagan and Ford. Ford, of course, not elected, never elected, wasn't part of a ticket, 
appointed um and reagan couldn't best him and the single and then you know look teddy kennedy won 11 or 13 states against carter which was itself the harbinger of the carter loss though people you know didn't think about politics as granularly as they do now and weren't writing his obituary which they should have been doing the minute that teddy kennedy you know had those you know had that had the the slate of victories against him uh you have to assume if Biden runs that there may be one there may be one person who enters the fray in case Biden falls on his head climbing out of the plane and is injured, sure. you know, so like so that Kamala doesn't just simply become the, you know, the someone will be there as some kind of placeholder. It's hard to know who that would be. I mean, because you'd then be viewed with great hostility. You know, do you run at Biden or do you just how do you handle it? He has to run. And that is the great problem because he has to run. And anybody who at this point doesn't think that he's lost a couple of steps is deluding themselves. And if he's lost a couple of steps, he's going to lose a couple more in the next 18 months. Like, I mean, when the presidential election effectively begins the day after the midterms are over. Uh, And so you know, it's a, it's a, and of course, then you have the whole dynamic, which is how easy do you want to make it for Donald Trump to make the decision to run again? If he wants to run again, he'll want to run against Biden. You know, I, 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 I'd say the following, John, who's to say we have reporting out from CNN today, which essentially, you know, which is we've seen from other outlets, which is You know, here, I'll I'll read to you the opening line. The signs of Donald Trump's next White House run are there. He has hosted wannabe campaign managers at Mar-a-Lago and quizzed golf partners between shots on who he should put in charge, though no formal interviews have been conducted. His interest in 2024 polls, especially how he stacks up against Florida's Ron DeSantis, his home state governor, has peaked in recent months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, though he has not yet formally launched an exploratory committee. I don't know if Trump would wait. Uh, He may jump in regardless. I will say this, which is Trump and Biden may have a mutually beneficial relationship. That is, Trump is the only candidate Biden can beat, and Biden may be the only candidate that Trump can beat. And they may play off of each other, which is you want and you go on from there. The only other thing I'll note here is I'm reminded of a segment that was done on the McLaughlin group. I think it was in 1991 um, in which they went around the circle and they went to good old Fred Barnes and Fred Barnes said essentially that based on his success in the Gulf War, uh, George uh, George H.W. Bush, they just called him George Bush at the time, um, was not going to, uh, he would not be challenged in a primary Barnes specifically pointed at Patrick Buchanan, who was his co-panelist, said, you will not challenge him, and that he has reassured his election victory. Well, that, of course, didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen was because, as Jack German said on that same panel, um, the Gulf War will be maybe like 15th or 16th on the list of most important issues by the time the election rolls around. We are at a point where, yes, it is June 2022. People start declaring or not declaring that they're going to actually get in the race towards the end of this year and the beginning of next year. 
but we're still two and a half years away or two years and a little less than five months away from the general election. It is plausible that the economy picks up steam by early 2024 and things really get turned around. I, based upon history, would much rather, not knowing anything else, go in with an incumbent than not if I were the Democrats. But of course, if Biden's still unpopular by that point, maybe I would change my mind. But just based on history and based on random rolls of the dice, I'd much rather have an incumbent running than not. I got to say, I mean, but yeah, even if the economy were to turn around um, um, instantly, I think there's an enduring pr- problem here uh, with Biden that makes it different from something like the Gulf War. Or something. And it's kind of a mirror image of, of what Trump's problem came to be, which is it's uh, the man himself. Uh, the, uh, there's something has happened in his relationship with Americans broadly. They've they've seen him. They've seen they, he's been exposed as something that uh, not all of them thought he was. Um, and I don't know how you shake that. Look, I mean, I would say this one thing, which is um the example that Biden would want is Clinton, right? Let's say he wants to win again. So Clinton gets Clinton is a, a minor uh, plurality president, gets forty three percent of the vote in uh, nineteen ninety two. When he runs in nineteen ninety six, it gets forty nine percent. This is after the worst midterm defeat in modern time, where where fifty two seats went to the uh, Republicans took control of the House for the first time in forty years. What happened between 94 and 96? Clinton, who was a Fran Tarkenton scrambler, um, changed gears. Like he he went wildly in different directions. He said the era of big government was over. He voted, he he signed welfare reform into law, and <clears throat> he had the economy growing at 7% in the first quarter of 96. So it's not just by the way the economy could turn around. Clinton signaled to voters who hadn't liked him or Perot voters or whatever, obviously these, those voters don't quite exist in the same way, signaled that he had learned his lesson, that he had moved to the left and he had made a mistake and he was change, shifting gears to make himself palatable to them. That is very hard to imagine Biden being able to do that with the same, you may say facility, I mean, I think the whole point about Clinton is kind of in for a penny, in for a pound. When he decided he was making the movie, made the movie, brought in Dick Morris. As I say, he voted for this piece of legislation that was anathematic to the Democratic left, where he signed it, uh, championed it, um, and said things that no Democrat had ever said before. And will Biden have improvisatory, the improvisatory capacity to change his image before the American people. Clinton was 45 years old when he did this. Biden will be 80. Like it's, you know, we're we're dismissing unwisely the earth shattering potential of the third way mansion Murkowski ticket that could just blow up all our, our political assumptions. Did you guys see this yesterday? Oh, it's so glorious. Yeah. So apparently this is the scuttlebutt. I was in Politico that, you know, they're trying to get on the ballot in all these states and they're talking about this, you know, joint partisan, nonpartisan ticket. If, if this is a Trump Biden election, man, they're going to squeeze right through the middle there and get 33 percent of the vote and finally end our addiction to the duopoly. 
Kumbaya, my lord. Two of the most unpopular people in their respective parties. Joe Manchin is no spring chicken. Joe Manchin is is almost 75 years old this year. It's a gerontocracy. I know. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, it's not like, what's he going to do? He's new blood. He's the one who's going to save us. He's like, he'll also be 80 by the time, by the time his second term rolls around. Um, anyway, uh, Harry, listen, yes, I want to let you go. We got to watch the January 6th hearings. Um, and uh, it's been great having you. I hope you'll come back. Everybody should go to Apple or Stitcher, wherever you go and download margins for error. Margins, margins of error. Margins of error. Um, a podcast I've not listened to, although as Harry knows, I was addicted to his prior podcast. Yes, I do know this. Which I, which I, which I loved unreservedly, and uh, uh, with uh, Phipps Avalon. And uh, anyway, uh, anyway, so I'm excited to know that this is there, and I'm sorry I didn't know that it was happening. I would just say it's a. Uh somewhat of a different podcast. It's not really a political podcast. So uh, one of the episodes we might've done is, uh, does wearing glasses mean you're actually smarter? Uh, another episode might've been the relationship between uh, uh, happiness, money and happiness. Uh, we did one on the metric system, why the US has not adopted it. Love uh, it. This week we did, and then I'll shut up, uh, was, uh, is love dying in America because the marriage rates, the relationship rates, and the sex rates are all at basically historic lows. Sounds fantastic. Margins Gentlemen. of error. He Marianne, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. Thanks for coming on again. And for Abe and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Mm-hmm.